The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Talking a whole lot about the uh, the political soap opera, but um, it's not just me, right? It's just, it seems to be out there, and it's not like we are about to do anything about it. I mean, when was the last time we actually did anything? Back in February, we voted, and then we got another, what, six months or five months, something like that, um, until we're actually going to do something else to vote in November. Um, maybe a few of us have have activities planned between now and then, but most of us are spectators. Um, and this is just fascinating to me, uh, partly because... I made my livelihood as a politician and uh, political scientist, both uh, uh, top political science at, at UCB and, and spent uh, some years as a hack in the Capitol and then became uh, an elected person myself, a county level elected person. And so I had uh, professional experience, both as a commentator, a professional commentator, and now just as, and, and also as a practitioner. And I came to think of um, uh, political science. I, I, I came to think of political science and the kind of political commentary that we engage in. Um, I, I used to say political science is to politics the way literary criticism is to literature. It's just not the same thing. It's um, political scientists and those of us who sit on the sidelines uh, and Monday morning quarterback um, have a completely different perspective than the people who are who are performing professionally. And we like to put some distance between ourselves and them. We like to think, well, that there's something wrong with them. Um, we're not like that. But um, in my experience, uh, we're all politicians. We're just not all professionals. Um, we're all politicians. We're, um, we're all, we all walk, we all run, or can, maybe, or do some semblance of something that somebody would identify as moving along, but we're not professionals at that either. We're watching the Olympic trials, well, maybe they're on, and there'll be some Olympics on. You know, all these professional athletes who do things that we can sort of take a lame swipe at, um, when you do it professionally, you pay conscious attention to it. Uh, you, you know, you, you uh, become a professional with with your profession. Um, but those of us who are amateurs are no less political. Um, we want things, and we uh, we do things to get what we want. I've I've always regarded lobbying as the master political art. It's getting what you want from other people. Uh, getting what you want from the world. You know, political scientists will go to, you know, into great detail about uh, distinguishing uh, power from authority, from influence. And, but really what it comes down to for practitioners is about getting what you want. Power is the ability to get what you want, desire. So it starts with wanting, which is, for those of you who recall the second of the noble truths, <laughs> we're right in the heart of the Dharma. Um, although we may not be professional. It's in the heart of the Dharma, you know, we're, we, we work with ourselves the Buddha said that, that every moment is experienced as either pleasant or unpleasant. Occasionally, either pleasant or unpleasant. Although in my experience, the closer I look, the more it resolves one way or the other. Um, pleasant and unpleasant. And that's you know, what motivates us. We like, we, we, you know, it's, it's hardwired into us. We like the pleasant. I think if we liked, if we preferred the unpleasant as a species, we would look for means of self-destruction. I think, you know, it's legitimately part of our being. Um, we want the pleasant. We don't want the unpleasant. 
those qualities are what manipulate us, or what allow us to be manipulated, and how we manipulate others. Uh, you know the story about how you make a uh, donkey move. You dangle a carrot in front of him and you hit him with a stick. Reward and punish. Uh, pleasant and unpleasant. And so we conjure uh, images of pleasant or unpleasant consequences. When, when, when we're little, uh, we can say, I'll be your best friend if you give me, get, you know, I'll give you your peanut butter sandwich. Oh, how does this deal work? I can't remember. <laughs> if you give me your peanut butter sandwich, I'll be your best friend. If that's the currency, if that's working. Right? I mean, that's a pretty primitive level. But we also do, if you don't get the car back by 10 o'clock on Friday, you're not going to use it for a month. Um, reward and punish. And certainly it underlies our, our societal criminal justice system. Punish. Right? To control behavior by, by uh, conjuring you know, consequences that would be pleasant or unpleasant. Um, the politics, then, of hope and fear are built into the way we are uh, and aren't. You know, they aren't so far from um, the Buddhist teaching. Hope and fear. The prospect of things being what we want or, things, or the fear of things not being what we want. Um, And we, we listen, we, we relate, and we don't notice that fear and that hope so much. You know, we're not in the, in the heat of the campaign now, so we, we sort of... But it's, it's, it's burbling along there, at least for me, as a, as a complete junkie. Um, you know, the, the stuff that is heartening to me I, makes me feel good, and the stuff that's disheartening... Makes me feel funny because I have my notions of how I'd like things to be, just like everybody does. Getting what you want begins with discontent. You know, with 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 dukkha, with unsatisfactoriness. Um, but we almost—it's it's amazing how we don't notice frequently. Because we think that what's going on is that the world needs fixing. We're pretty, we're sort of okay, pretty much, give or take. No, we're not. Okay. But it's the world that needs fixing. It's, it's screwed up, messed up. It's warming globally. It's, we do not want all that stuff is. It's all out there. Um, the world that needs fixing. And it's interesting because that's how we project our own dissatisfaction out onto the world. We don't, we don't notice the, the suffering in ourselves in relation to it. Ajahn Jumnia, a Thai monk from, um, from Thailand, um, uh, who appears uh, in this neck of the woods um, uh, about once a year, says, you know, desire, it works like the moth and the flame. For the moth, all that's visible is the flame. Everything else is dark. And the moth heads straight forward. And what the moth doesn't notice, and what we don't notice, is that relationship, that, that compulsion, that, that, that tug. Uh, what we notice is the object of our desire or aversion. So the world needs fixing and we don't notice our own suffering. Because maybe the world doesn't fixing. <laughs> what we may think needs fixing, someone else may think doesn't. So the thought about things needing fixing is, is in our head. Um, and how do we think things need to be fixed? And it's in accord with our with our opinions about how things are, how things should be. We know we're right about those because, because the, the, 
people who uh, disagree are wrong. That's how we know we're right. Often, just because we know that. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, the story behind behind most anger is, you know, I'm right and they're wrong. So when things need fixing, it's not surprising that anger shows up. That's right. Get a little testy over how things are going. Um, those professionals. <laughs> None of us are really very good at it. <laughs> you know, we all we all take a shot, but um, even even the people who do it for a livelihood are still, you know, kind of practicing. <laughs> um, but interesting, Buddha at one point in the in the Honeyball Sutta in the Majjhima, the Buddha says the Buddha was asked by Nandapani, who I think was a cousin and not a particular fan of the Buddha. What kind of a, you know, challenged him while he's sitting there in the, in the forest and, and Dandapandi shows up and, and challenged him, what kind of a dharma do you teach? And the Buddha says, I teach a dharma that does not contend with anyone. Pretty interesting. What is that? How do you get there? Does not contend with anyone because if you have an opinion or a thought about how things are the way things ought to be, you're right away in contention with someone who has a different opinion. Um, and the more we cling to our opinions, actually, opinions are interesting because. A lot of things that we think are true these days, we didn't think were true at some point. And probably what we're firmly attached to as truth right now is, you know, could be different at some point. Um, I know that's true because I just spent a weekend with my granddaughter and her, her she's seven, and uh, her concept of the world is recognizable, but... I can see it's going to be different. <laughs> uh, it won't take more than another few years. Um, but the opinions she's got, are, they're hers. And we think opinions are important. We cultivate them in this culture. Now, we've got how many different polling agencies? My gosh. And anybody know what the numbers are right now in the presidential election? I'll bet it's more than a few, you know, generally, give or take. Um, you know, we have people go out and, and, uh, and ask questions, and we, we regard the polls uh, as important. It's not necessary to have an opinion, by the way. Just, I mean, it's okay to just not have an opinion about any of it, global warming, Mortgage meltdown, how, you know, who should be who should be president? What we whether the war in Iraq is good or bad? You don't have you can't. It's not necessary. Um, opinions, interestingly, it, it seems it seems to me they stand in for um, right view. It's not. It's not just random that the first two elements of the Eightfold Path are right understanding and right intention. Because our intention flows from our understanding. Um, you know, for, the, for the Buddha, right understanding means seeing as it actually is suffering and the end of something. As it actually is, is the, the phrase that he, he uses. To see as it actually is, to know as it actually is, the taste of a banana. To see as it actually is suffering and the end of suffering, and the path to the end of suffering. That's right, right view. And of course, in 
in that, without understanding, seeing that clearly, what intention could arise that would create more suffering. Just wouldn't do it if you knew what you were doing. Most of us fumble along, um, doing the best we can. But when we harm ourselves or others, it's because we didn't see it coming. Or we can refrain. Uh, but if we saw it clearly, would we? But we have opinions. Well, they stand in for right. I understand. Opinions, views sometimes. The Buddha, Buddha said um, you know, the four kinds of, of clinging. Clinging to views is one. Clinging to our opinions, our ideas, our notions about the way things are or ought to be. Rather than just seeing things as they are, we see them as they are, don't like them, have opinions about what would make them better, make ourselves better, other people. Um, And that the way clinging to views, clinging to beliefs, really is just about believing them. When it comes to, to beliefs and views and opinions, clinging is, is to believe them. To believe they're true. We certainly don't want to believe anything that's not true. True is. We, we have ideas about that too. Thoughts and beliefs and opinions about how you establish truth. Those are true. Underlying all. Clinging, um, clinging to beliefs. Anybody ever gotten into an argument with anybody for a belief, an opinion? You know, pretty common. But if the, if the belief, if the opinion, if the view is delusional, well then how could you expect behavior, intention to form? that's not going to create more suffering for ourselves. If you think that the way to make yourself happy is to get what you want, um, then we'll probably continue to pursue the objects of our desire. As Dr. Phil, that's what we do, isn't it? As Dr. Phil would say, you know, how's that working for you? You know, an unskillful understanding leads to unskillful intention. Intentions, the unskillful ones, greed, ill will, cruelty. I don't need to come up with an example of greed, how we all can recognize it, ill will, anger. Cruelty isn't quite so so obvious because um, sometimes we, well, what, what would cruelty be? Be to intentionally inflict unpleasant experience upon another. And all of the time, any time we, we conjure a threat or try to invoke some the unpleasant, the, you know, the stick, there's a little of that of it. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon you. I'd like to, to talk a little bit about the the, um, the skillful intentions. And to read, I've got a couple of books and stories that I just absolutely adore, and I probably have told them all before. I know I have. Um, but I just can't stop myself. Um, because they illustrate the, the skillful intentions uh, so clearly. The first is, is uh, the first of the skillful intentions is, is the opposite of greed, which would be non-greed or generosity, dana. There's a great story in the, uh, in the scriptures where um, the Buddha is living with thousands of monks 
I guess they always lived for thousands of months, maybe it's hundreds, I don't really know, but, but there were a bunch in a place called Kosambi. And uh, it was a large enough, a large enough sangha that um, there was a master of the dharma, of the, of the teachings, and there was a master of the discipline, who were uh, monks who were looked to for guidance. And so they got into a squabble at uh, one point over, over, well, I guess the master of the dharma left the bowl of water in the latrine, and the other guy said, this is an offense, and, you know, an offense, no it's not, yes it is, no it's not. And they squabbled for a while, and then pretty soon, um, you know, the Buddha said, cut it out, and they said, don't worry, you're pretty little enlightened head about this, we'll, we'll take care of it. And of course they didn't, finally the, the Buddha left. I actually like the way this resolved, I'm just sort of cut to the side here, because how did, how did it resolve? Well, the Buddha split, and all the monks, um, well, they depended on the people in town for their livelihood, for alms. And when the Buddha split, well, the people in the town got a little cranky and said, you guys, you know, you ran the Buddha off with all your fighting. Um, no alms for you. Pretty good stick. So it, was, it got resolved politically. They they uh, they decided. You know, the one guy said, "Well, I guess I was at fault." No, 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 please. And uh, they went to track after they resolved their their differences. They went to find the Buddha, track him down. Well, in the meantime, the Buddha had gone to visit his friend or his cousin Anuruddha, who was living with uh, several other monks. And the Buddha shows up and he says. And he says, he meets with me, he says, I hope, Anaruta, that you, that you all live in accord, as friendly and undisputing as milk with water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. And Anaruta says, surely we do, Lord. But, says the Buddha, how do you do that? Venerable Anaruta replied, Lord, as to that, I think that it's such gain and good fortune for me here that I'm living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain acts and words and thoughts of loving kindness towards these venerable ones, both in public and in private, and I think, why should I not set aside what I am minded to do and do only what they are minded to do? And I act accordingly. As my Tai Chi teacher used to say, it looks so simple, but how do you do it? <laughs> I set aside what you were minded to. Anybody ready for that? <laughs> you know, the bar is pretty high. But it's not, it's not like it doesn't provide a, a vision for what's possible. Inside what I am minded, non, non-greed. Generosity. Non-ill will. Non-ill will is pretty interesting. Anger is usually the response to um, not getting what you want. Um, to be insulted somehow. Identity. Be smirched. It's a story from David Halverson's book, The Children. I ordered it because I'd heard this story and I thought, oh, cool, what a great story. I'll order that book. And then it came and it was like this. Now, who was that guy? So The Children is about um, the very early civil rights activity. And it's about the children because they were children. And the people who were doing it were, wow. The oldest were 20, and by the time it got to Selma, they were in junior high school and grammar school. A guy named Jim Lawson um, 
was the, the architect of the nonviolent strategy that uh, Dr. King used. And uh, he, he'd studied Gandhi and gone to India. And, and I'm convinced that you know, without nonviolence, it would just nothing would have happened. They would have slapped everybody down and said, well, we had to. So it was only the nonviolence that prevailed. Jim Lawson um, taught the uh, you know taught the, the people who were who were going to Nashville. This is a story that, that happened in Nashville at the very first sit-ins at the lunch counters, and he taught he taught the uh, uh, the, the small number of people. I mean, there were really a small number, and some of them were people you know, John Lewis and Marion Barry, and, and amazing collection of people, he taught them the, the tactics. So here's the story told by, um, told to Halberstam by a guy named um, Bernard Lafayette. They were walking from, this is, uh, um, Lafayette said he was completely unprepared for the moment when he was tested. Um, and he was with a group of students walking from the First Baptist Church to the lunch counters, and he was near the end of the line, about three or four people from the end. Suddenly, a group of white cuffs charged the black line and attacked one of his colleagues from American Baptist, a young man named Solomon Gort. It happened very quickly, with a speed and intensity all its own, and yet at the same time, it seemed to take forever. The whites had knocked Solomon Gort down, and now they were kicking him. And Bernard moved as quickly as he could to get back and protect Solomon, to put his body down on Gortz, as they had all been taught. They would make them switch their attention, that would make them switch their attention from Solomon to him, and they did, beating and kicking him instead. Just then, Jim Lawson walked over. He didn't rush over as if to an accident, or to stop a beating. Instead, he walked over very calmly, as if to a long-standing appointment. It was as if he knew all along that Solomon Gort was going to be knocked down and mauled, and that Bernard Lafayette was going to try to protect him. Lawson's arrival shifted the attention of the whites from the fallen Gort and Lafayette to Lawson. The thing about Jim, Bernard remembered, was that he was so utterly self-assured, so confident, as if he were accustomed to dealing with white cuffs, beating up fallen black demonstrators every day of his life. The leader of the whites was sporting what was the prevailing uniform of the day for white, for white cuffs, black pants, black leather motorcycle jacket, that's ass haircut. When he saw Lawson, he was enraged by Lawson's coolness, and he spat at him. Lawson looked at him and asked him for a handkerchief. The man, stunned, reached into his pocket and handed Lawson a handkerchief. And Lawson wiped the spit off himself as calmly as he could. Then he looked at the man's jacket and started talking to him. Did he have a motorcycle or a hot rod car? Motorcycle was the answer. Jim asked a technical question or two, and the young man started explaining what he'd done to customize his bike. Amazingly, Bernard thought these two men were now talking about the levels of horsepower in motorcycles. A few seconds ago, they had seemed to be sworn enemies, one ready to maul the other. By this time, both Solomon Gort and Bernard Lafayette were back up on their feet. The line was moving again, and Jim and the young man were still talking about the man's motorcycle. In that brief, frightening moment, Jim had managed to find a subject which they both shared and had used it in a way that made each of them more human in the eyes of the other. As they walked away, Jim waved to the man, and the man remained still, neither accepting the friendship nor, for that matter, rejecting it. It had been a marvelous example of Christian love for Bernard. That's a tough one, too. Anybody respond less than with loving kindness when you get cut off on the freeway? Pretty amazing. But the intention is based on understanding. And for Jim Lawson, it was 
the teachings that Gandhi had. And you know, actually, where Gandhi got them from was from Leo Tolstoy. Book, I guess, called The Kingdom of Heaven is, is Within. Is that the name of it? It is. It's The Kingdom of Heaven is Within. Um, so firmly based understanding conditions and tension. Again, a pretty, a pretty high bar, but not, you know. Not useless. It, it's helpful to have a guiding star. Non-cruelty. No cruelty is like I said. We don't notice it ourselves because we so much because as practitioners we we try to urge people to do what we want. One of the ways is by reminding them of how unpleasant it will be if they don't. And it underlies the, the, the principles of our criminal justice system, punishment. The opposite would be um, compassion, non-cool. It's from Jack's book, Jack Winfield's book, The Art of Forgiveness. So as he writes, no matter how extreme the circumstances, I th- and this is a story I think I think it's been on uh, the, the news magazines, the TV. Why do they call them magazines when they're on TV? But they call them some of the news magazines. No matter how extreme the circumstances, a transformation of the heart is possible. Once on a train from Washington to Philadelphia, I found myself seated next to an African American man who worked for the State Department in India but had quit to run a rehabilitation program for juvenile offenders in the District of Columbia. Most of the youths he worked with were gang members who committed homicide. One 14-year-old boy in his program had shot and killed an innocent teenager to prove himself to his gang. At the trial, the victim's mother sat impassively silent until the end, when the youth was convicted of the killing. After the verdict was announced, she stood up slowly and stared directly at him and stated, I'm going to kill you. Then the youth was taken away to serve several years in the juvenile facility. After the first half year, the mother of the slain child went to visit his killer. He'd been living in the streets before the killing, and she was the only visitor he'd had. For a time, they talked, and when she left, she gave him some money for cigarettes. Then she started step by step to visit him more regularly bringing food and small gifts. Near the end of his three-year sentence, she asked him what he would be doing when he got out. He was confused and very uncertain, so she offered to set him up with a job at a friend's company. Then she inquired about where he would live, and since he had no family to return to, she offered him temporary use of the spare room in her home. For eight months he lived there, ate her food and worked at the job. Then one evening she called him into the living room to talk. She sat down opposite him then, uh, and waited, and then she started. Do you remember in the courtroom, she said, when I said I was going to kill you? I sure do, he said. Well, I did, she went on. I did not want the boy who could kill my son for no reason to remain alive on this earth. I always have trouble with this one. I wanted him to die. That's why I started to visit you and bring you things. That's why I got you the job and let you live in my house. That's how I set about changing. And that old boy, he's gone. So now I want to ask you, since my son is gone and that killer is gone, if you'll stay here. She said, I'd like, I've got room, I'd like to adopt you. If you let me. And she became the mother of her son's killer, the mother he never had. I've read that one maybe a dozen times. Gets me every time. It's a pretty high standard. But it's possible. They're not the intentions 
dana, metta, and epiphany. They're not the intentions that arise in us when we're behaving politically, when we're trying to fix things, when we're trying to make things be the way we want them to be. The freedom that we're practicing for, the freedom is freedom from slavery to our opinions, to our impulses, from our desires, from our attachments. Not contending with anyone. Freedom from belief. Freedom. Uh, That's not contending with anyone. The direction that the Buddha points. So, about to the end of our period here, but I'm happy to. uh, and some of you are going to leave. But I'm happy to talk uh, or answer questions about this uh, if anyone would like or have a comment. Please. So you can count on me to have an opinion about uh, what you just said? I, I trust that somebody will. It would be. <laughs> Under the circumstances, it would probably be me. Um, I'm standing in line in Costco the other day, and I ran into somebody I haven't seen in a long time, and I said, hey, how are you doing? And she said, well, not so good, because I've been um, investigating national politics, and then proceeded to go on and talk about the fact that, that's something I didn't know, that uh, Condoleezza Rice, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld and George Bush actually blew up the World Trade Center. Um, so, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I thought about saying thanks for sharing. Uh, and I actually, um, I was fairly good about it. I just wound up saying that I didn't think I could swallow that as much as I didn't like those people. And that uh, I'd probably never had such an interesting conversation in the line at Costco. And I let it go at that, which for me was sort of a major triumph. Um, But there certainly are times in life, I think, when uh, when we as uh, critical thinkers, as good citizens, as decent human beings, have to register either an opinion in response because someone else may have said something that was racist or sexist or in some way really awful, Um, and that to stand by silently is to uh, a sin of omission, uh, but a sin nonetheless, and that there are, um, you know, however compassionate you could be, and the story you just read is deeply touching, um, but there is always, and this is a moral statement, but I don't have a better word, there is always, there are evil people around, and we, we need to do something about them um, at, at times. And I, so I struggle with that. So I would just ask you if you have some response. Well, I can't say that I don't share some of those sensibilities. And, you know, I'd say that's my story too, and I'm sticking to it. You know, where, where, is it Ellie Weitzman who said, you know, the only thing, or was it, he said the only thing that's necessary for evil men to, and we're, we're conditioned with those, those thoughts, and we're conditioned to believe those things as citizens, as, what was it, there were three items that you listed, whatever, whatever identity features you were conjuring, you know when we identify ourselves in that way. We have this idea that we have to have opinions, we need to stand against evil, and we can certainly do those things. We certainly can. And we can do them, you know, it reminds me of the story of uh, Sharon Salzberg was in India and she was uh, returning from a visit to I guess from one holy person to another, 
and somebody reached into the cab, the, the rickshaw that she was tried to pull her out, and she struggled and got got home. And, and uh, the, the holy man she was coming to, said, she told him the story, and she'd been carrying an umbrella, and he said, "Well, I, I would have." Struck her with, with the umbrella, struck that guy with the umbrella with as much loving kindness as I could muster in my heart. So the idea isn't so much that we gotta fix the world. Let's notice first our own suffering in regard to that. Because what happens reactively in order to make that suffering go away, we wanna change it. John Cage has a, had a I don't know whether he actually wrote a book or I just I, I took a class from him once and, and maybe he just was thinking about it. But the title of the book was How to Improve the World. Calm. You'll only make matters worse. <laughs> so when your when your intentions are coming are are coming from greed, anger then probably we're going to have, there's going to be a slip somewhere in, in the attenuation of suffering. Please. We're down to one microphone. Oh. <laughs> Speak into the end. Wasn't done. Um, I really identify with what you just had to say, but um, in my own. Um, I'm very intrigued with what Jim Lawson did. And in situations like that, the thing I'm going to carry away from this experience is to try to learn what to ask for. wanted to go back to what you said, Tony, about global warming and about opinion. I think one of the things that frightens me the most is stuff like global warming is not opinion, but when 99% of the scientists says we've got a serious problem that could, you know, ruin life on Earth, it's not an opinion. But if there's 1%, there can be a small group of people who would profit in the short term or benefit from the short term, it serves them to treat fact as opinion. And in our society, there's a lot of blurring of the two. I was asked in an opinion poll uh, on the phone, my opinion on whether a pregnant woman should be given 400 milligrams or 800 milligrams of folic acid. It's not a matter of opinion. That's a matter of fact for a person... Uh, who's knowledgeable um, and it it disturbs me a lot when people suggest uh, well we should just calm down because if we think there's something wrong with the world that's just a matter of opinion and we should look at how it's upsetting us not at how we should deal with things like the danger of our water pipes breaking in an earthquake or the delta getting flooded uh, with salt water or global warming. Yeah, there's, there's, I, I would certainly not suggest that uh, that life on this planet is anything but tenuous, but it's tenuous for us this afternoon. Um, I gotta go another 80 miles this afternoon on freeways. Um, And, and, boy, we don't like that. We don't like that. The vulnerability, the impermanence of life on this planet, the impermanence of our own lives. 
of you know, all that I love and all that I hold dear is of the nature to change. There's no way to pre- prevent being separated from that. One of the reflections uh, the Buddha encouraged. Not that um, things aren't happening. Um, that, may, that may be painful. I'm pointing to our own suffering, what we bring upon ourselves. And if we look at the, the conditions in which we live, you know, in the Bay Area, in the peninsula, in the history of human life on this planet, that's not, you know, not bad. Close to the heaven realms as you can get, we've got the soundtrack from hell. And, and we suffer with it. And we add to our own suffering. Because what we, you know, like I said, we're not going to actually do anything about most of us, about all this political stuff until November. If there's something to do, we do regarding global warming. We'll do what we, the best we can, most we can figure out. And it may be in time. Please. My name is Carla. I'm starting to understand um, how I cause my own suffering. And I had a view from things I had read over my lifetime that children had a clearer view of this sort of thing, that, that children had sort of an innocent, beautiful view of life and that we kind of got corrupted as we grew up. But now that I'm the mother of six-year-old twins... I am astonished and baffled at how to guide them into a gentler view of life. I mean, my God, these guys would rip each other apart without constant intervention. Yeah, um, you know, the, the greed comes so naturally, the unenlightenment, the, the self-destructiveness. It's, I look at them and go, and I'm trying to teach them meditation, and they do so. <laughs> you have a seven-year-old granddaughter you were with. Imagine having two of them for the weekend. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a, a woman incredibly clever teaching that she that she provides. She has taught her children to look for the want monster. It arises within within them this want monster, and they can spot it now. You know. Um, I just adore that. And uh, we, we teach as best we can. No, no. No, no. That's, that's, that's a delusion. They, you, know, it's, you know the expression, free as a bird? You know, they fight over food. <laughs> you know, it's, um, all, the, all the underlying potential is there. All it's waiting for is conditions to come out. And, uh, <laughs> now, the want monster is great because the kids can spot it. It doesn't always help. Please. Uh, I just thought that the uh, sense of self seems to me to be a key to what your uh, your uh, what you told us about about wants and desires and opinions uh, behind that's always the desire of the ego to uh, sustain itself when in fact it is nothing more than uh, uh, recurring uh, you know conditioned uh, what do you call it dependent origination all the little things that come up and then we mistake that for a permanent self and the ego I think that struggle of the sense of I am somebody in the world rather than a sense of there is a world and an I that both arise mutually, but they're not one uh, visitor in another space, but it's all just one sort of uh, thing arising with, with two 
perspectives, a perspective of the self and a perspective of the other. So, anyway, that's how I see it. Self, the ones that we believe define who we are, they, they, they are the ones of who we identify ourselves as being and who people, you know, people who are different, they're not us, you know, and of course they're wrong. Um, and they only need more education. Uh, just in, in response, I am now um, the mother of an 11-year-old daughter, and um, it's been an interesting time. I do have a story to share. When I was a, she was about five or six, um, we were walking along, and we were talking about meditation. And I said, there's lots of different forms of meditation. We can do some meditation as we're just walking along through these woods. And she looked at me, and she said, so why do you do meditation? And I said, well, I think it makes me less angry. She said, you need to do more meditation. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the whole, oh, the answer to you, one answer to the question is to lead by example. And so, this, you know, they will, they will always be fighting and they will always do this, but just... It's time you went to yoga, Mum. It's time you did some more meditation. And, and, and by, by you know, looking, looking as, as an example, looking, looking to the Buddha, for example, as an example, when the Buddha says, let none despise, deceive another, or despise any being in any state, do we sort of take that as, you know, well, the Buddha never met? <laughs> yeah, we do. Rather than, well, I've got some work to do. Not contend with anyone. Yeah, but there's some things that need can, you know, some pushback. Right? But the Buddha was talking just about suffering and contentment. What he said, he talked just that. See if it actually is. Doesn't mean that you know we don't act um, to to attenuate suffering. That may have to do with verbal warning, it may have to do with hunger or um, the way we perceive injustice. But there's a great moment in the movie Gandhi where all those guys and they, all those guys were hanging around and, and they all get up to go off and whatever it was they were going to do. And Gandhi says to them on, on their way out, he says, just one thing, are you going to help or are you going to punish?